Hello, this is Steve Mahella, and welcome to Mahella of a Chat. Welcome to part two of our interview with Elizabeth Gray. If you want to know more about Liz's accomplishments and expertise, please listen to the introduction to part one of our podcast. Today, we continue that conversation extending beyond simple estate planning by going into special needs planning and how that affects families. But before we get started, I'd like to thank you all for your feedback, your questions, and your encouragement. I really appreciate it. Please let us know what you think at Steve at stevemahella.com, S-T-E-V-E at S-T-E-V-E-M-O-H-Y-L-A dot com. And please feel welcome to share this podcast with your friends. And now, Mahella of a Chat. I don't have very many clients that want to disinherit a child. Oftentimes they just want it equal no matter what happened amongst the children or between the children and mom or children and dad or, or whatever. Um, a lot of people want it to go equal and a lot of children want to see it equal. Um, I get a lot of that in the special needs planning field where parents want to leave the special needs child more than the other children and I often advise them against that because the kids that aren't getting as much feel like mom didn't love me as much. It's kind of heartbreaking. Um, so I think there's other ways to get more money to that special needs beneficiary, but certainly I like to see things left equally unless there's a good reason not to. Well, that's a good transition for us into another one of your <laughs> uh, expert areas, and that is special needs. And you read in the papers where a special needs child who lives to adulthood can be a burden on the siblings. And so how does that conversation go in the estate planning meeting when you're trying to figure out, okay, it's likely that the parents are going to predecease the special needs child. Now what do we do? So how does that conversation go? Well, I tell the parents that the siblings should be able to stay siblings. If you require the children to step in on behalf of their special needs sibling, they're stepping into the parent role, and that doesn't work very well. And it's not fair to them. So I try to come up with other options, whether it's a professional trustee or um, for a guardianship, uh, a professional guardian, or a different, a different family member, not immediately related, a cousin maybe, somebody who is not part of that immediate family and stepping into the role of being a parent to a special needs child when they were siblings. 
Um, I see a lot of, of clients come in and they're very unhappy when they are the sibling and they're left with this burden. And believe me, they love that, that sibling, but their families just can't take that added new responsibility. And um, it's, it's heartbreaking for me to see that happen because um, I'm sure the parents didn't think that through properly in order to come up with a different plan. So oftentimes when I've got the clients in and I'm explaining to them why I don't think they need to make their other children in charge of the special needs child, they hadn't thought about it. One of the things I, I ask them is, have you ever talked to the other children about the special needs children, the, the special needs child, and what you're going to do um, when you pass away? And oftentimes they'll say, no, I haven't talked with them about it. I'm sure they haven't thought about it. Oh, I beg to differ. <laughs> they have thought about it. Even as young as nine, eight or nine, they've thought about it, that I'm going to be responsible for my sibling for the rest of my life. Um, so they need to talk to the other children about this and what their plans are. There are certainly things that we can do to have the family members have a role um, there's a thing called a trust protector that we put in some of the documents, and I usually suggest that the children act as trust protector, which for me is a non-fiduciary position, but the children can fire the trustee and appoint a new trustee. So they do get to see what's going on with the assets for the special needs child, and they can see the books. They can fire the trustee, and they can appoint a new trustee if they don't like them. So so how much pushback do you get from the parents when you first broach? I think you need the siblings to stay siblings, and I think we need somebody else to take this on. Usually, if it's a couple, one of them had thought about that very same thing. Um, I don't get that much pushback. I think that it's really just that they want to make sure this person is protected. And if we can come up with another way to protect that person, that's fine with them. And I think they heed the advice of not ruining those relationships. And I think that's really important that the other siblings are able to maintain a really good relationship with this special needs sibling. So I don't get a lot of pushback. I'm, and I probably make every estate planning attorney with whom I work cringe when I say this, but I always joke that estate planning consists of three things. Um, how do I own stuff while I'm alive? What happens to my stuff after I die? And who is going to make decisions for me when I can't make them for myself? That could be three pages, and it could be 300 pages, depending upon the complexity. But to continue our conversation about special needs children, we've talked about, okay, the parents planning for when they're not going to be in the picture anymore, but how much and what planning is required while the parents are alive, while they have this special needs child? Are there any things they need to be doing at that point that's current rather than planning for the inevitable future? Yes. 
One of the things would be a discussion about guardianship. Does this special needs person need a guardian appointed while mom and dad are alive? It could be mom and dad or um, what happens when mom and dad are deceased, who's going to step in to protect that special needs person from creditors and predators and all of that kind of horrible stuff. So how is it determined that someone has special needs actually needs a guardian? Well, uh, that's a tough issue because there are a lot of people with special needs that are high functioning and that they may not need a guardian appointed. Uh, a power of attorney would be a much lesser restrictive alternative to a guardianship but but how do you know and where do you draw that line of this this person needs the uh, protective nature of a guardianship and I think that word protective is where I sort of draw the line. If that person could be financially abused or physically abused by somebody when mom and dad are not around to protect them, then they need a guardianship. And so that's where, where I would recommend if, if you think about your child, can they be easily manipulated? I have some parents who say no. And then we would work on a power of attorney for that special needs person once they're over 18. Um, but I have a lot of parents who say, yes, we need a protective guardianship. And the beauty of the guardianship is that we can leave in as much as possible for the individual to do on his or her own. Um, so we don't have to take away the right to vote. We can take away the right to vote. We don't have to take away the um, preclusion of getting a driver's license. We can leave in there that this special needs person does have the right to try to get a driver's license. Um, the one thing they won't leave in is uh, the right to bear arms. <laughs> but that sort of makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because when you first said the parents being named guardian, I'm, I immediately started out with, why does a 10-year-old with a parent need the parent to be designated the guardian? But then I realized, wait, when they turn 18, all bets are off. When they turn 18, they are an adult in the eyes of the law. And uh, this happens in high school for a lot of the IEP or individualized education planning meetings. Once that kid is 18, they can block mom and dad from going into that meeting. So, yeah, once while they're minors, parents are the natural guardians of their children. But once they reach 18... All bets are off. The court has steps in place that hopefully would vet somebody that is trying to get guardianship over a, a non-special needs 18-year-old or even a special needs 18-year-old that has the capacity to do his or her own estate planning documents. The court, when you file a guardianship petition, appoints an attorney as an investigator that attorney is called the guardian ad litem. We attorneys abbreviate it to say the GAL. So the guardian ad litem is the eyes and the ears for the judge. Their job is to make sure that the in alleged incapacitated person has 
all of their rights preserved and due process is provided under law. So the GAL has to go out and serve the incapacitated person with the documents. The GAL has to read that person their rights, tell them that they have the right to their own attorney. And if they can't get one, the GAL gets them their own attorney. The GAL investigates the allegations in the petition. They review the information provided by the doctors. They review IEP plans or um, letters from psychiatrists. All of the stuff that's available in the court's file to help the GAL make a determination as to whether this person is incapacitated or not. And then the guardian ad litem's next job is to make sure that the people who want to be appointed the guardian are suitable and appropriate to be so. So if it's mom and dad, are they the most appropriate people to be the guardian for this person? And is there a standby guardian, someone that will step in immediately if uh, mom and dad pass away? All that would happen, let's say, if the child were 12 years old? No, it only happens once the child turns 18. In Virginia, you can file, a, I think it's uh, six months before that person turns 18. That's okay. right. So in Virginia, six months before that person turns 18, you can file a guardianship. But really, um, once that person's 18 is really the time to do it. Who pays for all of that? Parents. The guardian ad litem is paid by the Commonwealth of Virginia if the 18-year-old is considered indigent. And in lots of instances, the... 18-year-old has no money and no assets and no income, so they are indigent. So often the Commonwealth of Virginia is paying the GAL, but the parents are paying the petitioner's attorney. The parents would be the petitioners asking the court to appoint a guardian, and they're responsible for their own legal fees. When you said that the guardian ad litem explains to the person who may be placed under guardianship, you have the right to your own attorney. Mm -hmm. So the guardian is whose advocate then? That's a really good question, and it's a question that guardians ad litem um, disagree about on a lot of occasions. But you are an advocate for that special needs person, um, and you're uh, supposed to do what's in the best interest of that person. Um, You're also an advocate for the court to make sure that they're giving that person the due process under law, that that this isn't just handled and this person loses all of his or her rights without having um, the opportunity to be heard in court. That sort of sounds like their attorney, though. A lot of people confuse it as their attorney, but... Um, But as an attorney, we understand that I may be advocating for you to do something um, that may not be in your best interest. Um, So when would somebody need their own attorney? Um, In a lot of cases when it's questionable, the, the capacity issue is questionable. Is it questionable that this person could probably do this without his or her own attorney, well, then maybe they need their own attorney to advocate for uh, 
getting rid of the guardianship while the GAL is saying, it's my recommendation that this person have a guardian appointed. So lots of times it's going to be brought before the judge and the guardian ad litem may be um, advocating for something different than the incapacitated person's attorney is advocating for. I'm not advocating for as the GAL for that incapacitated person, I'm advocating for what's the best thing for that incapacitated person. Okay. I think that was the one that did it for me. You are, well, not you. The guardian ad litem is attempting to step above the process. And he or she is just looking at all the parties and saying, in my judgment, a guardianship is appropriate. Yes. Let's make sure all the checks and balances are done, that the judge has everything he or she needs to make this decision, but that's my recommendation. But the soon-to-be 18-year-old, because we've filed six months prior to the birth date, says, I don't want a guardian. I want to be independent. In that case, having his or her own attorney to advocate on their behalf to say, yeah, it's nice that the guardian ad litem says, I believe a guardianship is appropriate. My client says no, and here's why. So the guardian ad litem in that case is, is very, is, is, I can see where the conflict can come in now. Yeah, I had a a case where I was appointed as the attorney for an 18-year-old with high-functioning autism. And one of the rights that gets taken away from an individual is the right to marry. You have to go back to court to get approval if you want to get married. And he didn't like that. And the guardian ad litem didn't care and said, you know, he needs a guardianship to protect him. But... He needs his own attorney to advocate if, if his complaint is that he wants to be able to marry. So as the individual's attorney, we had a long conversation about what that means to him, the ability to marry. And the court's not going to take away his right to choose who he wants for a relationship or for a spouse. And the court just wants to make sure that they're marrying the right person that isn't um, I guess right person isn't the right word. I would say um, that as best can be determined, motivations are pure. Exactly. That's a good <laughs> way to look at it. The motivations are pure. This person isn't just marrying them for their money or some other nefarious reason. Um, and I, after talking to this guy and saying, look, at you're only 18. You don't even know any girls. <laughs> your age that are, you know, would be willing to marry you right now. Um, Is it so bad to have to go back to court? Even mom and dad can't agree. We can't, we can't do that. So why not just go back to court if you want to marry? And he thought about it and he said, okay. Mm -hmm. So we took an issue and hopefully made it a non-issue. I filed something with the court about that, and the guardianship went forward, and he got a guardian appointed. But he felt like he was heard, and his wishes were taken into consideration, and he got to make that decision. And once again, as a non-lawyer, I would think all of that paperwork 
would come in handy when he goes back to petition the court to be allowed to marry if the guardian withholds permission. That's would right. It, would it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's briefly touch because on on this, but it's it's. I think it's related to planning, but it's an unforeseen circumstance, and that is okay. We don't have the trust. We don't have the power of a t- medical power of attorney. We don't have the financial power of attorney. We don't have the living will. We don't have any of that. And mom or dad comes down with Alzheimer's. And so we need to, and please correct me if I'm using the, the, um, the words incorrectly, but we have to petition the court for an involuntary guardianship. How does that process compare to the process we just discussed? It's very different. I had a case years ago where mom had Alzheimer's and some parts of Alzheimer's make people behave very belligerently and um, aggressively. And she was basically beating up her husband. Um, She had come after him once with this huge butcher knife and he was scared to death to fall asleep. So he didn't know what to do. He was a client that, that I thought he was going to die if I didn't do something right away. Um, so what we did is we had her, uh, the next time she behaved inappropriately, we call, had him call Mobile Crisis. Mobile Crisis came and picked her up, and we had an involuntary commitment hearing at the hospital um, for the only purpose of getting her in there and making sure she's got a roof over her head, she's taking her medications, and she's eating appropriately so that he could have time to recover, rest and recover, and make a plan of what am I going to do now. And because she hadn't ever signed any documents, one piece of the plan was going to court and getting appointed her guardian. Um, The doctor had to do an evaluation, which gets submitted to the court when you file a petition, and when the guardian ad litem has had experience and understands Alzheimer's and the way it it, um, comes out in a lot of people, they would understand why someone would be objecting to a guardianship, even though it's in their best interest and they have no other option. So in this case, we did file a guardianship petition and by that time, her medications had been um, set up and she had a care manager involved and she was taking everything when she should and she was being much better managed, which helped the aggression and the paranoia so that she didn't object to a guardianship when the time came. How long is one of those emergency involuntary commitments? Well, the involuntary commitments happen um as quickly as possible, I, I believe it's within 72 hours. Um, so in, in that particular case, um, we were very lucky in that they came and picked her up on a Thursday. So that meant to me, we're not doing anything until Monday. So he's got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. and then Monday morning to have the hearing. And that gives him enough time to, in my opinion, get the rest he needs and to work with the care manager and figuring out 
what they're going to do with her. So at that 72 hours, it's determined that this is what we're going to do, but that person could also be left in protective custody, commitment, whatever we want to call that, more than just the 72 hours, or in Virginia, 72 hours and you're out? You know what? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) These happen at the hospitals. Um, They usually have the commitment hearings in, in the hospital, in a conference room. There is a judge, an attorney that's acting as a judge. There is an attorney for the alleged incapacitated person, and there's usually a psychiatrist and a social worker. So um, they have a hearing, and the judge at the hearing makes a determination of whether they can keep that person longer or not. Um, And I don't remember how many days they can keep him. Got it. I heard you use the term care manager. Is that someone affiliated with the hospital? Is that someone independent? Where where does this person parachute in from? <laughs> That's another professional that we as elder law attorneys work with routinely. So that's usually a social worker or a nurse that has experience dealing with the aging process, has experience dealing with doctors in discharge situations at the hospital, and knows and is familiar with a lot of the different housing options available out there and the different facilities out there and which ones are doing really well, which ones to stay away from, and what would be the most appropriate place for this elderly person based on their condition and other circumstances. Um, There are private care managers. I usually give people three names and have them pick one of the names based on the personality of the person that they feel like they can work the best with. Um, The care manager or social worker at the hospital is a different type of care manager. And really, they want to get that person out of the hospital. That's what their job is. So they don't really have the best interest of that individual at heart. Um, The care manager is that person's best advocate in those situations of making sure that the discharge is appropriate and um, suitable for this person. I had a case where the discharge planner at the hospital wanted to discharge mom home into dad's custody. Dad had really bad Alzheimer's. There was no way Dad was going to be able to care for this person. He came off very capacitated because nobody spent more than five minutes with this man. So they had no idea he wasn't going to be able to take care of her. But that wasn't taken into consideration when the discharge planner made this plan to discharge her to her husband. So we brought in a care manager, and the care manager was able to assess dad and say, look it, this is not a safe and appropriate discharge plan. It's, okay, would there be a time when you would use a care manager when it's not a crisis? When you actually have all the documents in place. Absolutely. If the person wants to go 
to look at options and different facilities and, and what's out there, a care manager is the perfect person to do that with. I get a lot of people calling up an elder law attorney because they want to place mom and they don't know where and what do I think and what can I help them? Well, I'm going to cost a lot more than a care manager per hour to help them. And I'm not familiar with all of the different facilities all the time. Yes, I've heard some of the different facilities and I get some feedback from clients, but the care managers are there routinely and they know the people. They may have worked there before. So they're a much better option to help a family address the situation of whether it would be safe for mom to stay at home. If she can stay at home, how many hours of care would they need brought in? Um, is the house set up and appropriate for somebody with declining capacity to live in? Um, are there rugs that could be moved, um, bars that could be put in place? The care manager will do all of those things. Okay. So we've touched on when you act as an estate planning attorney. We've touched on when you act as an attorney for a special needs person. And now we've touched on a little bit of uh, elder law. So what else is in your practice that you cover? I deal with asset protection planning for public benefits. And I will tell you, I get a lot of people that call me up and say, I need an irrevocable trust. My husband's got dementia and, and we're going to run out of money and I want to protect all my money from the government taking it and, and my house. Well, that's a perfect client for me to talk to and have a consultation with and address those issues of whether or not an irrevocable trust is even appropriate and what's going to happen with the house if that spouse is still living in it and what public benefits are out there and available for that person. So that's another sort of piece of the elder law picture that we handle as elder law attorneys. How often do you get that call five years before it's needed versus the scenario you just described? Not that often. And I'm guessing that you said five years because you know that there is a five-year look-back period where Medicaid gets to look back five years from when you've applied for Medicaid to see if you've made any transfers that would trigger a penalty. And that triggering would be if you've given money to kids, if you've given money away to somebody else. Transfers between spouses, not a problem. But transfers to other people, it could be a problem. But people don't tend to plan that far in advance, so I sometimes don't see that. I was going to say on the back end, <clears throat> after the person passes away, I was going to talk about the, the Medicaid um, clawback. Oh, estate recovery? Yeah. Um, but maybe we should. So, okay. So, you do your best. If they come early enough that it can be, the transfers are protected and appropriate because it's, 
It's anticipated but not predictable as to when this might happen. Or they call you, like the example you gave, I need to set this up yesterday, can you help me? After all's said and done and everything's in place and that sort of thing, um, if you followed all the rules, is Medicaid then out of the picture? Or once the person who needed this protection passes away, does Medicaid show up again? When the person is on Medicaid and dies, estate recovery happens by Medicaid. So Medicaid is going to make an inquiry when an applicant, uh, that's not right. Medicaid is going to make an inquiry when a person that is receiving Medicaid dies and see if there's anything left in their estate. If you've put something in a trust and the trust doesn't count, it doesn't count. It is not that person's asset when they die. So those assets would be protected. But if they've got uh, $2,000 in the bank account and Medicaid says that that uh, they're entitled to it, they're entitled to it. Um, they keep very good records of every expense that they've paid for. And you're paying back on former dollars without any interest accruing. But they are entitled to try to claw back uh, money from the estate of the deceased person. What about the house? That's a really good question. Um, if the person is married and the uh, spouse who's not in the facility is living in the house, the house is not ever going to be subject to estate recovery. In fact, one of the things we do and we're required to do by Medicaid is once that spouse qualifies for Medicaid in the nursing home for the spouse living in the house, we redeed that house to that spouse because it then becomes that spouse's house. So then there's no look back on the residence. Nope. Not there unless are that. Other assets. Exactly. Um, if that spouse then needs to go on to Medicaid then and had given the house away to the kids, that would be a problem. But if that spouse gives the house to the kids and moves away and never needs to go on to Medicaid, then she can do what she wants with it. So really, the residence is protected regardless. The, if you are married and your spouse is not the one needing Medicaid, then that house is protected as long as she's she or he is living in it. Once they pass away... So, spouse goes into nursing home needing Medicaid. Yep. Passes away. Mm -hmm. Surviving spouse, living in the home, living in the residence, lives another five years, passes away. Medicaid doesn't show up to talk to the executor? Correct. Oh, okay. So, your, your residence sounds like it's protected by rule. That's correct. There are rules that protect assets belonging to the non-institutionalized spouse. In Medicaid language, we call that person the community spouse because he or she is still living in the home, in the community, and not in the nursing home. Okay, let's complicate it a little more. The community spouse 
eventually needs to go into a nursing home. Applies and qualifies for Medicaid. Is that house now subject to estate recovery or... What happens is the house is exempt for six months from the date of institutionalization, and then it becomes an asset. And so it would not allow the spouse to qualify for Medicaid because that spouse would have too much in assets. They could sell that and pay for the care. Correct. Rather than rely on Medicaid. Okay. Correct. Okay. I, you know, I don't know what our listeners are going to think, but I'm always thinking, yeah, but what if? <laughs> so cover the simple eventualities and leave the complicated for later. Yep. Um, all right. So we've talked about coming in when just the normal sibling rivalries may occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about coming in when one of the siblings may have special needs and how we want to leave the spe- the siblings to be able to be siblings as opposed to stepping into being the successor parent, as it were. We've talked about the special needs child becoming of majority at 18 and how that process is to set up the guardianship. Um, then we talked about um, involuntary and care managers Before we wrap up, is there anything that we should have talked about that we did not? I think that we've addressed most of the issues that crop up. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit about the contested guardianships where there's a fight over mom or dad and... um, People think that that they'll get appointed guardian and and it's half the family for one person and the other half for another. Um, Those, the court routinely puts in a neutral third party. Can you give a case example of that? um, Or, Or make up a story that just helps with, you know, dad looks like we're going to need to set up a guardianship for him. Is it that half the siblings don't think he needs a guardianship or all four siblings think he needs a guardianship, but two want it to be them and the other two want it to be them? (laughs) Um, No, actually, I'm thinking about uh, a a case where I am actually the guardian and conservator for a 99-year-old woman who has seven children and we've got four against three. Um, so there was some kidnapping going on where one child on one side would take mom and move her here, and then the other side would kidnap mom back and move her over here, and then they filed guardianship petitions, um, uh, dueling guardianship petitions to have mom declared incapacitated and then name uh, their side as the guardian to make the decisions for mom. And the guardian ad litem got involved, an attorney for mom got involved, and you had four attorneys. And the only people that win are us attorneys. We make a lot of money dealing with these fights between amongst family members and poor mom. 
Was mom determined to be in need of a guardian? Yes. Okay. But the surprising thing is that she had powers of attorney. But in situations like that, she had a couple different sets of powers of attorney because different children kept taking her to different attorneys who kept drafting different powers of attorney. So, uh, and maybe like your story about the husband who had Alzheimer's, the 15 minutes mom was in the attorney's office, she gave no hint correct. that she wasn't able to actually grant the power of attorney. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of money involved? What was the motivation? The motivation control, um, it can be as silly as, you know, uh, one child didn't think that mom loved her as much and this is her chance. Or uh, another child got something for Christmas that the other one wanted and never forgave him or her. I, you know, it's this In this things. particular case, my head hurts. We have a 99-year-old woman with seven children, meaning their average age was probably 70. In their 60s. Yeah. 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 And they're fighting over mom and control of mom and who gets to care for her and make those decisions because she can't make those decisions. And mom had powers of attorney. Yep. We'll assume durable. Yep. <laughs> for those listening... Um, and I'll make the layman's explanation, and Liz will correct me if I get it wrong. A power of attorney is only in effect as long as the person granting it has the capacity to grant it. Once that capacity is gone, so is the power. A durable power of attorney survives the grantor's ability to grant a power of attorney. That is correct. Okay. So if the person is incapacitated... Later on, that power of attorney is durable and, and continues on. But we had a case here where we thought the right thing had been done, but the thing had been done nefariously, repeatedly. So the court is left to decide exactly which of these is in effect. And that's how four attorneys were finally sitting around a conference table trying to figure this out. Well... So uh, one attorney represented one side, second attorney represented the other side, and then when they filed a guardianship petition, the court appointed a guardian ad litem. That's three. And then when the guardian ad litem served mom, she wanted her own attorney, and the guardian ad litem agreed that this would be in mom's best interest to have her own counsel. So she was appointed an attorney. So that's where we got the four attorneys, and what the court ended up doing is, number one, revoking all the powers of attorney out there. There's no power of attorney that is in effect at this point forward. And the conservator, which was me, is the only one with the authority to make any financial decisions for mom. I read somewhere that you measure the true character of a person any number of ways, two of which are sharing an inheritance, and mowing an unfenced boundary between your houses. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, there wasn't even an inheritance. 
This was lifelong wrongs attempting to be righted by seizing mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, mom's 99 years old. There's not a lot of money left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, but I could imagine a more colloquial judge looking at seven children in their 60s, shaking his or her head and saying, would you grow up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been an absolute pleasure for me. Maybe if some live cases occur out there or uh, the Virginia General Assembly doesn't stay out of session for very long. When they're back in session and they change something, uh, you know, you you talked about asset protection when it came to um, public benefits. But there was also, what, five, six years ago, Virginia became one of the states with an asset protection trust. And so as things change, I hope you won't mind coming back and, and we can talk about current events. Sure. I'd love to. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks again to Liz Gray for all her time. If you want to subscribe to Mahal of a Chat, we are on iTunes. Please tell your friends, please share these episodes, and send us your questions and comments. Until next time, this has been Steve Mahella with Mahal of a Chat. Chat. It's a hell of a